I want to uh, continue in this series that we've been in. We started last week with asking for a friend and, and uh, was really encouraged by some of the questions that we received. Um, and, and again, I wanted to reiterate this. One of the things that's really been on my heart through this series is that I want to see us create an atmosphere where it's okay to ask questions. Because unfortunately in Christianity, we've kind of built this scenario where if you ask a question, it's an indicator that you're lacking in faith. And if you're lacking in faith in one area, perhaps the entire idea of religion and God, which we see as some house of cards, is just going to come crumbling down because of that. I want us to normalize the idea that people have questions. People have doubts. There are days when people are trying to mesh the reality of their lives with the theology that they believe, and it's not always easy, and I don't ever want to give that perception that it's always easy to follow God. There are days when it's difficult to get your theology to line up with what's going on in the world around you. And so as we've been going through this and as we do this over the next four weeks, my goal in this is for us to set some solid theology surrounding these questions. And they've been good questions. What does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? How do we get saved by God? Can we lose our salvation? These are deep questions that we need to answer. But this week, my curious friend has some questions about death and the afterlife. Here's the question that was posed to me. What happens when we die? What happens? What, what, what becomes of us when we die? Listen, there, I, I mean, this is important for all of us because you probably know this to be true. There are two things guaranteed in life. What are they? Some of you say taxes first. Like you're like, maybe I won't die. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I know I'm going to have to pay taxes. There's just, there's no, no way of getting around that. And you know, death isn't such a bad thing. I've been along a lot of cemeteries. They're beautiful. And I tell my kids how beautiful and awesome they are and that people are just dying to get in there. And it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah, sorry, a bad joke. Death is going to happen unless Jesus returns. It's something we're going to face. And listen, it's something we face with question. What is going to happen in that moment? And I wanted to, maybe before we jump into where I'm going in Luke chapter 16 this morning, wanted to just identify a few myths. I can't go really deep into these, but a few myths surrounding the idea of death that I think are really important because, again, we want a biblical theology of what death is. And first is this, the idea that everybody goes to heaven. Listen, I don't know, I guess I can think of one, maybe two funerals I've been to where the person said, I don't think they're in heaven. I'm pretty sure they're not. Almost everybody says, I know they went to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. Well, unfortunately, that's not scriptural. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says that wide is the road, and the word there could literally be translated as super highway. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to salvation, and only a few will choose it. And so he speaks that there is a distinction there. Revelation 20 verse 15, we see that in the end times, on the day of judgment, this idea that comes forward that says, only those whose names were written in God's book, this book called the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name's not in there, you're not going to heaven. And I want us to dispel this myth. You don't go to heaven because you're an American. You don't go to heaven because your mom or dad loved Jesus. You don't go to heaven because you went to church one Sunday. You don't go to heaven just because you said the sinner's prayer. 
It is deep, committed relationship, life-transforming relationship with Jesus that changes us and brings us into that eternity with him. Number two, this idea, and if you have any kind of a Catholic background or upbringing, you may have heard this before, that you can be prayed into heaven after you death. After you, yeah, after you death, that's it. We'll just stick with it. <clears throat> after you death, we'll just pray for you. This is not scriptural. There is nowhere in Scripture where we see, and if, if you have, again, a Catholic upbringing, you've probably heard the word purgatory. If you've ever been down to Pittsburgh, you might have been to purgatory. But either one, okay, you cannot be prayed out of, and there is no place in Scripture where you see a place that is a resting ground in between heaven or hell in which someone can pray for you. This is pretty common um, in Reformed uh, the Reformed Church, in the Anglican Church, in the Coptic Church, in the Catholic Church, this idea of lighting candles and praying for someone who has died, praying for their salvation. The Bible tells us very clearly in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that God has already determined and that punishment will be eternal. When we, li- when we die, we'll be judged on this life that we lived, and then it's eternal what happens after that. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that that judgment is final. There's nothing that we can do to change that after we have drawn our last breath. Number three, hell was made up by the church. This one kind of hurts me in some sense because the statistic is that even among evangelical Christians, only 67% believe in an actual hell. The other 33% believe that it was just something made up by the church to hold on to power so that they'd be able to say, you better obey or you're going to hell. You better do this. And don't get me wrong, those things have happened and they are abuses of power, but it does not take away from the fact that hell is a real place. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, Jesus spoke on hell more than he did on heaven. It is a place that he speaks of and not with any joy. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says that hell is a place of eternal punishment for the wicked. And in Matthew 25, 41, he says that those who have given their lives and wasted their lives away will be eternally expelled into outer darkness. Punishment, torment, we'll talk about it further. Number four, dead people become angels. This is not true. It's not biblical. In fact, if we read in Psalm 8.5, it says this distinction is created. God says, or David is saying, God, you created man a little lower than the angels, meaning that there is a distinction. They are both created. Angels were created. Humans were created. They do not intertwine. We don't become them. They don't become us. 1 Corinthians 6.3, he's speaking to the early church and telling them, when you die, you will stand in judgment of angels. Again, distinguishing here. You don't become one or the other. You are what you are. They are what they are. Number five, people can watch over us or visit us after they have died. Heard this many times after somebody, well, they're dead now, but I know they're going to be watching over me. Uh, They're going to be my guardian angel now. This is not biblical. It's an idea that prevails in our, in our culture, but it is not biblical. In fact, here is what we can see in Luke 16, 26. There is a great unpassable chasm between heaven, hell, and earth. They're, they're not passable. You can't go back and forth in between them. In John three thirteen, Jesus says of himself that only the Son of Man can ascend to heaven because he has descended from heaven. He says, I'm the only one who can do that. There's no going back and forth. And like we said before, You don't become an angel. And then lastly, and this one is also very heartbreaking, is the idea that hell is just some eternal party. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, prior to being a full-time minister, I worked 10 years in commercial construction. 
Can I just say construction workers need Jesus? Probably teachers and mechanics and everybody else do too, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Um, everybody that I worked with, they knew I was a pastor. In fact, there were some companies I worked for, they didn't even know my name. They just called me preacher. Hey, preacher, come here. And, and I would tell people about Jesus. And it was honestly one of the things I loved so much about a secular vocation was that I got thrown into the midst of people who didn't know Jesus. And I could talk to them about Jesus. Now where I work, most of the people are already saved. And it's, you know, still working on Pastor Tyler, but it's. <clears throat> Here's the, the sad thing that I would hear from people sometimes, though. Hell's where all the cool people are going to be. Hell's, you know, hell's just going to be drinking with my friends and hanging out with my buddies. Why would I want to go to heaven? None of my friends are going to be there. I'd rather go to hell. That's where the party's going to be. This sad idea that just keeps coming up in our culture, but here's what the Bible tells us. In Revelation 14, 11, it says, hell is described as a place of constant torment. And also, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he literally says to them, you should fear hell more than anything else on this planet. He says, why would you worry about what people can do to your body? You should fear he who can throw you into hell where you will be punished for eternity. He says, hell should scare us more than anything else on this planet. And listen, I know we've, we've kind of gotten away from this. I know I'm, I'm not what they would call a fire and brimstone preacher. How many of you grew up with a fire and brimstone preacher? Any of those? A couple of you? Yeah. And it was every Sunday, you're going to hell unless you come up here and repent. And we talked about that a little bit last week, this idea of the fragility of your salvation, that if you got into a car accident and while that was happening, you said one of the no-no words, okay, then you're going to hell. Or if you had gone to the movie house and Jesus came back, you're going to hell. If you were playing cards while the last trumpet sounds, you're going to hell. And it's all of these things that, you know, that, that were really pushed, but this idea that hell is still a real place, it's still a reality, and it's not a party. And we don't speak about it so much because I'd rather talk about the goodness of God and the place that he has saved for those who loved him than to talk about the place of torment for those who have rejected him. But these are the myths surrounding death that so often prevail in our world. But I want to take a, a closer look here in Luke chapter 16 because there's a story that Jesus tells that gives us the quickest and most concise glimpse of eternity in this one story. And it's verses 19 to 26. And you can read along in your Bibles or on the screens with us. And here's what it says. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. Translation for some of you younger, he was dripping. This is what he was, he was doing awesome. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Side note. I know they say dogs' mouths are clean. I've owned dogs. Their mouths are not clean, okay? They're gross. <laughs> Things they do with their mouths, gross. Okay, so just anyway, side note. They would lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. The word there is Hades. It's the word for hell. 
There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. A few takeaways that we can get from this this portion of Scripture here. Number one, we enter eternity immediately. Now, this is kind of a hard thing for us to understand, and even when we talk about it, it's one of those things that makes your brain hurt a little bit, okay? We live life on a linear timeline. Everything is A to B. You can't go back. You can't go forward. You're where you are. And our way of trying to comprehend uh, eternity is a timeline to which there is no end. But the reality is that eternity is the absence of the timeline. There's no time anymore. It doesn't exist. Time is a construct of us for those of us who are dying. And it's, I mean, if you ever stop to think about it, it's kind of funny the way we measure time. It's like how many times I got to see the sun and how many trips I made around it. That's how we measure time, right? Days, months, years, weeks. You know, I tried that. Next time somebody says, how old are you? I just completed my 40th trip around the sun. I'm not trying to brag, but I've done it 40 times. Some of you have done it a lot more. That's <clears throat> but what we see here is the picture that says that the man who died, the angels took him immediately to Abraham's side in the banquet table. I had the incredible privilege a few years ago uh, to be at the bedside of a woman named Vernie Stuchel when she died. Vernie was 100 years and four months old when she died. And Vernie had never been able, she and her husband had never been able to have children, so she didn't have that. Even a lot of her nieces and nephews had died. And and when we would have conversations, she'd often say, I don't know why I'm alive. I don't know why I'm still here. Everybody I know is gone and dead. My friends, my family, they've all been gone forever, but she continued to live. So when she was on her deathbed, I wanted to make sure that I was there. And, and, you know, I, I just don't believe anybody should have to die alone. But I wanted to be there, and I wanted, there was another lady from the church, we were there as well, so we're sitting there, and Vernie had been comatose for weeks. Like, she had been laying in this hospital bed, her eyes would not open, she just laid there kind of breathing. And Mary was sitting on the opposite side of the table, of the, the bed for me, and I'm sitting there, and out of nowhere, Vernie's eyes just shot open, and she starts to look around the room, like she could see something that we couldn't see. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I was there. I'm, I'm not trying to make any of this up. I was there and I saw it. And so I said to Vernie, I said, hey, Mary and I are here. Vernie, we just want you to know we love you. And, and Jesus is coming to get you and you're going to go home to Jesus. And she's looking around the room. I mean, her eyes are just darting around the room looking. And then a smile came over her face and she stopped breathing. It was beyond doubt the coolest thing I've ever been able to be a part of. To watch, and I know that sounds morbid, but if you could have been there, you'd understand but to watch the joy on Vernie's face when, I don't know, maybe the angels were coming for her. I, I don't know what she saw. I know she was not looking at Mary or me. She was looking around the room at something else and then just smiled and was gone. We see in Scripture that that's the picture that's painted. We are immediately absent from the body and in the presence of God. Now, still in the book of Revelation, we see that the day of judgment has not yet taken place. 
However, it has already for those who have died, but it hasn't for us. Why? Because in eternity, time is not a thing. That blows our minds. We can't wrap our head around it, but that's the way it works, okay? But this is what we see. The, the Lazarus immediately goes to, the, to Abraham, which is mean to go to heaven, and that the rich man immediately goes to the place of the dead. Uh, number two, the righteous receive rest. And number three, the wicked receive punishment. I want to point out here, the wickedness of the rich man is not just that he was rich. Because I don't want us to think that, like, wow, rich people, they go to hell. That just, you have to be poor. That, that has been preached before, okay? That you have to be poor to go to heaven. And that's not what this is saying. The point that it's trying to get across is the position between the two of them. The rich man who had everything in this life that he could ever want for himself. And outside of his home lay a man who had nothing, and he did nothing about it. In fact, the only relief this man got is that the rich man's dogs would come and lick his sores. This man himself didn't do anything to try to care for Lazarus, even though he had plenty of wealth. I mean, it's talking, he dressed himself all nice and fancy, and he had this and this and this, but he didn't lift a finger to help the poor and the needy. And listen, this is something that Jesus speaks about continually in the New Testament as an indicator of the content of our hearts. He says, what is your level of care and concern for the poor, the needy, those who need help that cannot repay you? Because if you give to them freely, it says, the Bible tells us, when you lend to the poor, you lend to God and he'll pay you back. When you give to the poor, you give to God and he'll pay it back. That's what Scripture tells us. And so this is not that it was, Lazarus was good because he was poor and the rich man was bad because he was rich. It was because this man lived selfishly and refused to care for anybody else but himself. We see in number uh, four, heaven can be seen from hell. I can't imagine a greater torment than being in that eternal torment, but also being able to see the paradise that you threw away because you decided not to have relationship with God. But this is the picture that's painted for us here. But hell cannot be seen from heaven. Number six, the torment of hell is unbearable. Think of the imagery here of what the rich man says. Could you just send Lazarus over? If he could just dip his finger in a cup of water and I could get one sweaty, salty drip off of it into my mouth, I would feel comfort for half a second from this torment. This is the level of anguish that this guy is in. And lastly, our earthly status has no, being, no bearing on our eternity. I think this is so important for us because we don't go to heaven because we're Americans. We don't go to heaven because you know somebody who knows Jesus. You don't go to heaven because you own a Bible. As I've said this before, it is about relationship and the life that you are living for God daily. And, and Jesus, I mean, he, again, these are his words. You can throw them back at me if you want to. But they're his words. He says, your lack of care for the poor indicates an emptiness in your heart. There's a void there because you only care about self. And so this reality of what he speaks to. And so it's a challenge for us. But this is what it looks like. For, you know, for those of us who have relationship with Jesus, who have accepted Jesus into our hearts, we're living for God daily. It tells us that when we breathe our last breath, we go instantly, instantaneously into the presence of God where we rest with him for eternity. But if we have rejected relationship with God, then we go instantly into the torment 
And the Bible tells us that we are judged based on the lives that we have lived. And again, church, this is why this theology is so important to us, to be able to understand our own position, our own relationship with God. What does eternity look like for you? You know, this question, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? I know we see it on on, uh, billboards to the point that it's become cliche. But think about these things. If you died today, where would you spend eternity? In, in contrast to what they're speaking here. The last thing I wanted to touch on, and this will be much more brief, as I know we're running out of time. It's 12 o'clock. Can I go past 12 o'clock? Is that okay? Nobody will starve. Great. If I'm being honest, I'm getting a little hungry, so I'm going to go faster. I mean, they got those donuts with Duncan with the pastor, so. The other question I got in connection with death is, what does the Bible say about cremation? And, and the reason this comes up and has been kind of important is there is or has been a prevailing idea that if you burn the body, you can't be resurrected because you won't have a body to be resurrected. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this image, and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens when you die or, or when God comes back, but it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are still here on earth will be called up together, will cap- catch up with one another in the clouds, and then be united with God forever. And so this idea that they have come up with is, well, if you don't have um, a physical body, because it was burned in the ashes, how would you be resurrected to then go up into heaven and be with God? And this we can see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 53, and I'll read this quickly. It says, our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. Don't overthink that. It could get weird. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. Again, a couple of takeaways from this that we can look at. Number one, uh, there's no place in Scripture, whether it is endorsed or forbidden, to cremate a body. There's nothing that says if you burn the body, then you have destroyed it, and and you've messed up, and there's just no hope for you. Um, and, and I guess a question that I've always raised to that idea is, I mean, what about if somebody dies in a house fire and their body like gets burned? Is it just like, sorry, dude, you were going to go to heaven, but now that stinks. That's bad. Uh, or what about somebody who died a thousand years ago who wasn't mummified and, you know, their bones have rotted to dust? It's like they're, you know, the coffin's open and they're, res- it's like, oh, and I, I, I really hoped he was going to come. No, I mean, There are things there that just don't make any sense if we were to think in those terms. Number two, uh, 
and, and this might shock some of you, especially when you're looking directly at me, these are not our heavenly bodies. What's, um... You know, they say it's family that hurts you most. Oh, you know, just as an encouragement to you, if you're ever having a morning, you know, in front of the mirror and you're struggling to get something to tuck in, you know, when you're getting dressed, just tell yourself, you know what, it's okay. This isn't my heavenly body. My heavenly body, I mean, I know what it's going to look like. Like, anyway, these bodies are not our heavenly bodies. In fact, the, the scripture we just read makes this incredible distinction that these earthly bodies cannot inherit what is given by God. Only a spirit body can inherit that, which is uh, also, and I'll skip over this number three for a second, this idea that our rise into eternity will be spiritual and not physical. We will be transformed. But also that God creates from nothing. God doesn't need stuff to make stuff. In fact, if you read in the Latin, it says that, that God creates what they refer to as ex nihilo, which means from nothing creates something. God's the only one who can do that. And so this idea that God would need our heavenly bodies to, to then be able to create an earthly, or, or need our earthly bodies to then create a heavenly body just doesn't make any sense because God doesn't need these things. And as we just read, we're going we're gonna to be stripped of this to be clothed in what is, what is going to be permanent and eternal. And so I guess just to speak to that, this reality, there's nowhere in Scripture where it says it's right or wrong or indifferent. Um, I will tell you it's cheaper uh, and, and if you're interested, I mean, I encourage you to check out what other cultures do regarding death. It's really actually very interesting. Um, I had a friend of mine go down to Argentina a few years ago, and he discovered that while he was down there, when you die and you are buried in the cemetery, dead people have to pay rent. And if you don't pay your rent, you get evicted. They will dig you up and pull your casket out and throw you in a mass grave because you didn't pay your cemetery rent. Like, this is what they do. So, I mean, his grandfather, who had started a church there, he went to see his grandfather's grave in Argentina, and the guy who was there with him, he says, oh, don't worry, brother. He goes, somebody in the church gave a lot of money so that your grandfather, he can stay here for at least 150 years. And I'm like, what happens after that? Sorry, dude, you got to get out. But that's what they do. And, and again, it's just a different cultural ideas about death. And so as always, with all the things that we discuss in this asking for a friend, we have to be very careful about mixing cultural ideas with biblical ideas because they're not the same. We have a lot of cultural ideas, like all those myths about death, that we become angels, that we, everybody goes to heaven, that all these things that we just talked about. There are cultural ideas that are not biblical. And believe me, there are biblical ideas that are not cultural. And that's why solid theology is so important for each and every one of us. And I encourage you, as we continue to go through this series, as I said last week, ask your questions. It really breaks my heart to hear over and over again this word deconstruction that is becoming more and more prevalent among young evangelicals because they were told from the time they were young, just believe, just have faith. And if they asked a question, they would say, you don't ask that, you just believe. 
And church, that's heartbreaking because now some of those kids as adults are in the place where they've got questions and because theology seems so fragile to them, it's falling apart for them. So I really encourage you. And, and you know what? That's one of the benefits of being in a body of believers together is that there are people in here who've been walking with Jesus for a lot longer than you who maybe can speak into that. Your pastors can speak into that. Don't go to YouTube. Please. Okay? I can only imagine what would happen if you type in a YouTube search, what happens when we die? I, don't do that later, Okay? Go to people you trust, people you know, people who have been speaking into your life, and work through those things together. Um, It is so important that we do that for one another. Ask your questions, and please don't feel like any of them are stupid. Uh, It's the only way that those who are in deconstruction can avoid becoming destroyed in their relationship with Jesus. And so I encourage you to do that. I want to ask you to stand as we close together. And we are going to continue the next uh, three weeks in this series, but I want to pray again uh, because it has been so heavy on my heart to pray for those who are in a place of questioning. I want to pray for you because I don't want you to leave ever feeling like if I have a question, there's something wrong with me or I don't love Jesus, I don't believe in God, I'm not going to heaven. I want, please, 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 everybody has questions. Everybody has days when they cannot mesh their theology, what they believe, with their reality, what's going on around them. It's called a crisis of faith. But a crisis of faith does not have to destroy your relationship with God. It can bring you closer to God as you work towards finding the answers that you need. And so I want to pray for those of you who might be in here who say, I've got questions, I've got doubts, I've got concerns, I've got situations in my life or in my past that did not line up with my theology and I'm struggling to mesh all that together. I want to pray for you because I believe, like I said last week, God is light and he is truth and he will reveal himself to those who are seeking him. So God, I just pray right now, For those who are in this room that are probably uh, still questioning things about you, their relationship with you, things they've been told about the Bible and about you, the differing ideas that surround everything, the differing teachers that surround everything, God, I pray that you would help them to find solid theology in their lives, that they would come to a place of being settled on the truth of Scripture, not just the opinion of those around them. God, I pray you're covering over them as they're in this season of seeking. God, that it would not be condemning by anyone in our midst to tell them that that they shouldn't question, they shouldn't wonder, they shouldn't doubt. God, we know that we can have absolute faith because you prove yourself. And I pray, God, for those who are seeking that you would prove yourself to them as well. And God, I pray that we would continually foster an atmosphere here at Family Life Church where it's okay to ask questions where we're not afraid of that because we know that you don't fear them. And God, I pray that you will continue to speak truth into our lives. Bring us to that firm foundation that is Jesus so that we can stand upon that and weather every single thing that comes our way because we know who has our back. We give you all the glory, God, and we thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Lord bless you. Uh, Have a wonderful week. Our prayer team will be up here. We'd love to pray with you if you need prayer this morning. If you are visiting, please come over to the cafe so our pastors can meet you and get to know you a little bit better.